opportunities. Welcome to Raw Popcorn. <laughs> I'm Mike. Uh, I'm Bill. Chris. And I'm Ryan. And we don't know what the fuck we're doing. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> that. That's the subtitle of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> totally what it should be. Um, okay, so this week's list. Uh, the first one is text editors versus mini IDs. I wrote VS Code, and I guess Adam's in there too. And then versus full IDs. And what I meant by that is I was using Vim for a while, and then now I'm slowly switching into VS Code, which I'm starting oh, to like a little bit more. Doesn't Vim essentially end up being like a mini IDE once you've got all your crazy add-ons and stuff added to it? Right? I don't add jack shit to my Vim. Really? Yeah. Because everybody I've ever worked with that used Vim has like a million effing configuration files that they throw down. For all what? Their, I'm just like... We have a, a mutual friend also named Ryan that... Um, yeah. He was telling me about his, which is insane. It He's got like a full file manager that can pop up. Yeah, like Vim. the nerd tree. Sure. I've seen that. Sure. Uh, yeah. No, I don't... And, like, it's running R tags in the background, so you can, like, jump to around variables and find where they're devi- defined and stuff like that. Like, it, it's essentially a full mini-IDE at that point. Yeah. 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 Okay. And I, I, I do I've not seen... think most people that use Vim go that far. Okay. Well, when I did, my VimRC, I think, had, like, six lines in it. Mm. And it was mainly to set, like, no expand tab and... Some tap stop stuff, but nothing crazy. Yeah. Where would you guys put Emacs in that? I don't even range. think about Emacs at all. Yeah, it doesn't even. I think I tried to open it once, and then I couldn't close it. <laughs> <laughs> and I just formatted the computer. <laughs> <laughs> the only time I use Emacs at all is when I hop onto a Linux machine where someone had done set-o-vi for the vi key bindings. Huh. That's just, like, for, for read line, essentially. Back that shit right out. Yeah. It's super annoying. I haven't run into that. But, yeah, I, I don't use... I don't use... Uh, I don't add those features to vi because I don't find that I need them very often. Yeah. And because they will definitely not be on every machine I ever go to, which is the primary reason I use VI. Yeah, that's it's, fair. If I'm logged into, you know, somebody else's, you know, backend dev box spawned off of another machine, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I'm not using VS Code. If, if I'm going to do a lot of coding and I know that it's all going to be on one machine I'll probably use a tool like Kate which is more like a text editor like a GUI text editor that has a lot of I mean you can use VI key bindings on it but yeah. it's got a lot of the functionality that you know you want like be able to block comment stuff and that stuff yeah, that's kind of where I come down with I, I'm really liking VS Code but I used uh, Komodo Edit for a long time Basically, if it does color syntax highlighting, variable um, uh, completion, yeah, and it has a nice directory tree so you can hop between files easily, that's really all I need. And tabs, being able to open multiple tabs of source. Yeah, yeah. I've I've used the you know magical super ID everything is push button, whatever. But 
at the end of the day, I found that when you you got into a like really dirty problem that you actually no, I need to know what the compiler include paths are or whatever. Like you're you're having to dig through menus and settings and a bunch of stuff that hides from you. You're talking like Visual Studio at that. Yeah, point. yeah, like yeah. Visual Studio Eclipse. proper Eclipse, those kind of things, which is like I think on the yeah the, yeah, yeah. the super extreme and you know one extreme of your spectrum. So I, I'm kind of following more. I like I like VS Code. Yeah. So that's what I'll use to like code most of the stuff. But I must be the only person in this room that actually mainly uses VI. Well. The, this past week I've been using VS Code. And I think it's worth noting that it sounds like I'm one of the only ones that doesn't add shit to I don't even touch VimRC. I don't even modify it. I do sometimes. And I don't know. I've been getting a lot of new friends lately, so I haven't. Um, but yeah, I've liked VS Code. Because I use it at home. Because I used to write a lot of JavaScript. And for that, it was really helpful for like snippets... You know, you write like like Emmet snippets. If you're familiar with, no. So <laughs> you can write like I met a dude named Emmet. Stupid shit like div dot foo dot bar and hit tab. It'll make a div with the class foo and bar included. So you, it's like shorthand. Okay. Like, like, like a like macro. macro. Yeah, they're macros, and it's really useful for that. You can put those in Vim. It's a little bit more painful, but since I've been coding mostly Python here. Um, it's been kind of useful. I like the syntax highlighting. Yeah. Unused variables highlighting, that's nice. Um, that's primarily what I use it for. And I like copying, like, or shifting blocks of code around. Mm-hmm. It's like the hold option up and down. You can move it anywhere. That's nice. That's pretty much what I use it for. But I think I can use either or. I think a full-blown IDE. I personally wouldn't, don't use it. I've used, like, Visual Studio in the past, and I just never used the features that, like, create all your classes for you and add functions and do refactoring and all that. I think a lot of, I've seen a lot of kind of entry-level younger programmers who end up shooting themselves in the foot because they'll, like, use Eclipse to do Java or something, and they don't really understand what it's doing for them. They just know when they want a new function, they go to this menu item and hit this. If they need a new class, they go here and do that. There's people that actually do that? Yeah. I don't know. I've seen a few. (laughs) What? I used Visual Studio during school because it was free from the Cal State download Microsoft software thing. Yeah. Um, First one's free. Yeah, and there there was, yeah, there was definitely that whole thing, like, oh, I want a function push button, there's your, you know, mock empty function signature. I do absolutely remember working with people at school that um, that had no effing clue what they were doing, and they were always the ones that used the full ID. Really? I don't I don't remember anyone ever actually hitting a drop-down menu to create a new function, but, but definitely, like, if it didn't work, they had no clue why. That's crazy. Yeah, I gotta say, it was probably college that I ran into these people as well, who just like they learned how to use the IDE and to get through the classes and stuff, but they didn't really understand what the IDE was doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this this might be slightly off topic, but has anybody ever heard of? I think off topic, ra- on topic. Rational mm-hmm. Rhapsody. Anyone? I've heard of some of the other rational tools, but not Rhapsody. So Rhapsody is like the person that think of the person 
that you know, or maybe you don't, that loves UML, like UML to them is no. like the greatest thing ever. No. Rhapsody is the tool for that person where you literally draw pictures, hit a button, and your source code pops out on the other end. No, it doesn't. Uh, you're, you're right. No. It doesn't actually <laughs> pop out on the other end. But that's their the dream. And it's like, it's this whole IDE environment thing that does code generation, and it's terrible. Don't you're right. It. If you ever go anywhere that says, like, we use rational Rhapsody, don't. Yeah. Code generation in general. Like, I feel like it's often terrible. Yeah. The only last time I dealt with code generation, I think, was Dreamweaver. Oh, wow. Like... That's going back. Yeah. I think that's the last time I did code generation. Yeah, because I'm thinking, like... Or maybe front page. There was, uh... Oh, God, what, what tool was it? There's some library that was obviously, like computer-generated library. It was by Python bindings for something. And uh, reading the code, it was just like, like, what is going on here? This is... And it finally, it, it occurred to me, like, oh, this is this is machine-generated code. So, no wonder it, it looks like ass. Yeah. It was never intended to be read. By humans. Yeah. <laughs> there was There was a case, and I think Ryan actually ran into this, where, so like this Rhapsody thing, you could draw like a state diagram and like associate like functions and code with each state, and it would like generate the state machine for you, and there was a bug where like, oh, something you know, is wrong, guys in the lab were like, well, I, f I fixed the code and got it to work, they gave it to Ryan and said, here, go implement this fix, he literally could not do it because that was like part of the special Rhapsody generated code that you couldn't yeah. change manually. So you had to figure out like another way to work around the code generation that the tool was giving. You know. Sounds about as much fun as Visual Basic. <laughs> you guys ever use that? I did. Oh, God. I did not do I that. I dabbled in it like long ago, but not enough to... VB6, even a little bit of VB4. Yeah, I inherited a bunch of 16-bit Visual Basic yeah. way back in the day. Yeah. All right, we're going to move on. Yeah. Kind of on the same topic, do you guys use uh, step through, step debuggers? Like step through debuggers in Python, or you just never find that you ever need? I've used it a few times in Python, but it's been through, like, Visual Studio Code, where you can, like, actually graphically step through. Yeah. Um, I had, I've also used PDB a little bit in some yeah. cases, but I, I found nowadays most of the time I don't need it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, same with me. I, I haven't used Pythons very much. I use GDB a bunch, but uh, not not the Python debugger. Yeah, every once in a while, I'd use. There's a module called PUDB, that's like a curses interface for debugging. I actually found that really useful in our like a stacky backend. Like, just go and edit the code and put a breakpoint in it, and then fire it up through PUDB and. You oh, can actually cool. step through, and it has a little section for variables, yeah. and you can step line by line in and out of functions and mm. stuff. But it's all curses based, so you can run it on a terminal. I would like to check that out. That sounds cool. Usually just tracer prints. Yeah. 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 Prints. <laughs> Old-fashioned debugging. Yeah. Uh, all right. Do you guys still think that Mac is oh, king man. for developers? Oh, this one. Oh. <laughs> I've never liked Mac. Yeah, I've, I've never I've never owned one. Okay, okay. I, I guess the, the, the question comes out for me because 
I, I guess the question for me is like, by the numbers, is it king? Okay, so I'm speaking from my own personal experience. Every job I've had, they've given me a MacBook, and no other choice. It's always been MacBook or Windows, but I mean, seems pretty popular from like web developer type firms, web programming sure. firms. Is kind of where I see it. Like I've never. It's always been like Dell's that we, um, you know, kind of install Linux on without IT knowing. That's how it's been for me in the past, but. Even here, it, it used to be, like, the Mac thing is new here. Okay. Um, but kind of like what you're saying, in, in startups, in web shops, absolutely MacBooks. And, and disappointingly, which I think maybe is where this conversation even started, is, like, you go to conferences, yeah. Linux conferences, yeah. and it's the presenter walks up to the stage, pops open a laptop, and there's that stupid white Apple logo <laughs> staring at you. Um, and... I think that it is still very, very popular. Yeah. Um, and I think probably by the numbers, even. That so I like. I don't. I personally don't get it. Like, is it? Is it just the image? Apple's cool. No, I, like, I. I think that that what it comes down to is if you need to do um, development against a Unix platform, which is going to be, you know really most platforms these days the, the code's eventually going to be deployed on on Linux um, it's a really convenient interface to do that and for the longest time there wasn't the Windows um, bash stuff right the WSL stuff but um, and I think that was really appealing to be able to have a native Unix that had easy access to, to Unix Linux tools um so it's more of this is a kind of Unixy looking Linuxy looking thing, but you can't really deploy Linux because we're scared of it. Right. It's it's easy to set up yeah. a printer. Yeah. I guess that's my question. Like, what what what's wrong with Ubuntu? What's wrong with well, insert distro here? Right. Like, for me, it was actually a nice handoff from where I was on primarily Windows before because I did, like played some games, and I wanted to program a little bit, and so. I got a Mac, and I got to play around Shell, you know, Unix stuff, and then now I'm like, oh, I'd rather just have a Linux box now. But there was that nice transition, I guess, mm -hmm. where I was like halfway. I still got some like GUI stuff for free, not free, but like easily. But I also got, you know, some flavor of Linux. Yeah. So so I I've been a Linux user since the late '90s and um, very late 90s and the and I used it on the desktop I used old distros um, as desktop machines and in the early 2000s I really wanted a, a Mac yeah with Mac OS 10 because it was a, it was a unixy thing it, it seemed like it like it made mental sense to me like here's a, a machine that's running Unix that um, that is going to be pretty reliable in terms of like like a software update isn't going to make it so that I can't get to the GUI anymore or stuff like that. You know, back in those days, Linux desktop was pretty rough. Yeah, like doing stuff like Office stuff, writing yeah. Word, you know, yet Open Office or whatever the hell it was called before Open Office, and it was painful back then. Yeah, yeah. Like I ran Linux on all the laptops I've had, and 
yeah, back in like the 2000s, it was, I mean, there were times where I had to borrow my future wife's Windows computer just to get a report done into a yeah. professor because I couldn't get it to work, look right under right. Linux. Wow. Yeah, yeah, the bad old days. Yeah. Um, <laughs> today, it's like, yeah, why not something like Ubuntu? Yeah. You can get commercial support for it. You can um, you can get it from a you know a vendor like again back then you couldn't get Linux on a Dell laptop yeah. right it didn't come with it you could put it on there but yeah hack it compile your kernel press someone's reverse engineer the driver for whatever crazy hardware you have right editing a, a X Windows <laughs> configuration file um, I guess but, I'd be interested to see what the trend is since like all my more recent experience with like mainstream Linux distros on mainstream hardware, i.e. Dell XPS 13 or insert computer here has been like, it's a really seamless, nice and polished, you know, experience. Yeah. I get all the nice Linux stuff. Well, there is that company, System76, where they specifically develop Hardware. I don't know if they do the hardware. This episode brought to you by Sid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, uh, yeah, I just remember that was a thing. Like yeah. they were, it was like a big deal. Well, we only we ship it with Ubuntu. That's yeah. what you get. And that's how you know that everything in it will work with. Yeah. With Ubuntu. Sure. But like with Dell coming out with this developer edition, like yeah. I wonder what that's gonna do to a company. Like, it's been that way for a couple of years now. So that Dell, that you've been able to get Ubuntu from Dell on certain. Um, versions of their their line okay for a few years now yeah. well that's cool um, at least four or five years yeah and system 76 as far as i can tell is doing better than they used to yeah, yeah. even but um yeah it, i do wonder about the max like the i think that there's been some missteps yeah um you know the the new macbook line starting in like seven, 2017 or whatever, whatever the touch bar yeah this <laughs> is just a total disaster. Yeah. I um, don't love the touch bar. The touch no bar sucks. The, the keyboard, keyboard. The keyboard, keyboard sucks to type on. Um, is it like an auditory click? Is that what it is? It's like not it's an actual travel. click? The, yeah. The keys don't travel enough, I think. Okay. Right. Yeah. It's just that they're like the amount that you push down to actually register a keystroke is shorter even than it used to be on the old laptops, which was already kind of short. Yeah. Um, the software just seems super glitchy too. Like, and that yeah. used to be one of the 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 solid parts about macOS is that it was it just worked. It just worked. That was the tagline, you yeah. know. But now it's like, I don't know. This thing just shuts itself off <laughs> in the middle of the night, and I come back <laughs> in, and all my shit's gone. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, to be fair though, like, how much of that is the corporate? spyware or whatever they put on the Mac before they deliver it. That's fair. I don't know. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, I don't know. I would assert that the corporate spyware being able to kernel panic your your software is probably not a good sign. It's a feature. Yeah. yeah just <laughs> ensuring that I reboot it every now and yeah. then. It's like pen testing without you wanting it. Yeah. I don't know. It's, so, I... Because, to be honest, I've never, like, personally used a Mac, like, at home or whatever. My only experience has been here in corporate land. Mm -hmm. I have, what, 2012, 2013-ish model? And I loved that thing. It was... Yeah. It's it, dying now, but... And at Stack IQ, I had, I think it was a 2015. 
yeah. which is pretty good, pretty solid. Um, you know, the keyboard is okay. Yeah. It, it wasn't the travesty that's sitting in front of us now. Um, and the software was okay. The The problem that I ended up having with Mac OS um, after several years of using it, uh, even at home, was that, like, um, you just couldn't configure stuff. Like, if you want different keystrokes or something like that to, to open up windows or move them around or something like that, yeah, you had to go pay somebody 10 bucks to get that feature. <laughs> and yeah. that feature already exists, existed in, in Linux. Yeah, no, uh, I bought one of those uh, window management. Yeah, so there's all these tiny little things. It's like you, you hit these little tiny pain points. There's corner cases. Yeah. Most people probably wouldn't care. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, in, in KDE, it's a, a checkbox on a menu. And yeah, yeah. In, uh, in Mac OS, it's $10 to some dude. Yeah. Hopefully is going to keep supporting it forever. Yeah. And their system Python, like that, if you ever want to pip install anything, it's like, oh no, like six is out of date. I'm like, well, yeah, update it. No, you can't do that. It's like, uh, <laughs> I kind of need it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Um, let's go to the next one. No predictions. Okay, so um, a couple weeks ago we started talking about test driven development, TDD. Mm. And so well, we were all kind of. I don't know what that is. Why would you use it? So I went home and I started reading a little bit about it, and it's fucking weird. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole point of it is you code to the test instead of requirements. And so you write these tests, like you have a function, add, and you want to test that 4 plus 5 equals 9. Well, when you write your code, you literally return 9. Because that makes the test pass. And that's, like, what you're supposed to do. So then you would try another test where you would add 6 and 4 or whatever and assert that it equals 10. And then you would start actually writing your logical code. Like, it, it's fucking weird. I mean, that sounds like trying to distill it down so a machine can start writing code for you, right? Like, sure. Here's a battery of tests, AI box, <laughs> fake code that passes it. Yeah, and so it was just super weird. And then, But I actually decided to try it this past week when I was writing some new code. There were some hiccups, um, but ultimately, since I knew the output of what I wanted, it was useful for me. But I, 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 had, I was just refactoring code. I didn't have new code. So I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm still, it's still in that weird phase for me, but uh, I'm going to keep trying to do it on... Any new code I write. I mean, just, but that whole, well, you're not writing the requirements, you're writing to tests, yeah. is a little bit bullshit, right? Because in order to write what the tests are supposed to be, you need some level of So, well, no, no, no. You write your tests to requirements, but you write your code to make the tests pass. So it's like a weird, I don't even know how to explain it. It, You write the minimal, the the least amount of code possible to make your tests pass. And it makes sure that you're writing tests that actually cover everything. It, instead of going back and trying to remember everything you want to test, you just are building code that actually passes every test from the start. Oh, I see. So you're, you're trying to write the battery of tests that cover every single edge case. Therefore, if you write code that passes those tests, it must be correct. 
That's sure. the theory. Yeah. yeah. You're kind of iterating, you know, write a test and write a bunch of code that passes that test and then write the second test and then write some more code so it forces you to have complete test coverage. Mm -hmm. um, well, yeah. you assume. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. always that. Well, it could be, yeah, very well it could be you have complete maybe code coverage line-wise, but not necessarily path-wise. Yeah. And definitely not like logical-wise. You can't possibly input every possible input parameter unless you start doing fuzzing and all that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Uh, we Ryan and I were talking just yesterday. Um, mm -hmm. We were sort of re-architecting some of the, the stuff he's working on, kind of. Sure. Um, you know, he came and he's like, okay, so here's here's the solution I got. How's this going to work? And we realized during that talk, like, oh, no, we've got to, we actually kind of need to make kind of a big change to the, the way this is architected because we didn't consider this piece before, mm -hmm. right? Um, but he's already, like, he's got code. That yeah. he wrote toward that that design, mm -hmm. the original design, the original design, yeah. But now the design changed. Like, if he had been doing test-driven development, not only is all of that code need to be changed, and possibly a lot of it just thrown away, all the tests would be too, and so he's got twice as much work that he'd be throwing away. Whereas if, like, right now he'd said, "Okay, let's do a checkpoint. Okay, everything looks great." Good. I'm going to write some tests to make sure that everything is solid. Yeah, so the, the background on this is I've been doing a lot of work and, like, functionally running it and testing mm -hmm. it. You know, like, just does this kind of get to the basic what I need to do? Right. Then I was going to squash it, clean it up, like, and then PR it piece by logical piece with full test coverage. Yeah. So I hadn't actually written a line of unit test or functional test or whatever yet. Right. It's all been kind of manual. Does it get to the, you know, end goal? And then now we've got this big design change, so now I just change up the code, get it to where it kind of functionally works the way it did before, and then I haven't thrown away, you know, a huge amount of test code. Hmm. So, I I don't know. It's, but then again, maybe the whole idea of iteration is that you're going to have a lot of churn on your code anyways. Yeah, definitely. I Yeah, I don't, yeah, I guess you would be throwing away a lot of code. I don't know. Because, like, this was a core assumption, essentially, that changed. Mm -hmm. uh, like, a, a fundamental constraint was like, no, that doesn't work. Okay. I got nothing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what was your verdict? Like, did you like TDD? I like it. Well, he likes it enough that he's going to try to keep going forward with it. Yeah. I'm, I'm not completely, like, going to leave it. I'm going to keep trying it to see if maybe it helps something else that I couldn't think about but uh, I'm definitely intrigued um, yeah I, I like it I, I guess the the only thing I have is like with TDD or agile or pick insert you know buzzword development methodology here is that I, I don't like it when people fall into the trap of well this is the only way and the best way to do it where it's like no man <laughs> you gotta find what works for you yeah, and what works for your team because you can't just like mandate from on high we will do things this way and like expect it to work necessarily yeah, I could see getting behind TDD but more of a middle path where maybe you're writing tests but you're doing it 
maybe not even at the unit level, like the function level, but maybe at like the API layer or yeah. kind of a layer between your sub modules inside whatever you're trying to create and then write a bunch of code to pass those tests and get that subsection of your program working the way mm-hmm. you think it's supposed to work and then move on to the next chunk. Mm-hmm. I think it's good that it forces people to think about testing and actually have testing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think makes it pretty hard if you're so micro-focused at the function level, trying to decide what function I need, and this needs to work this way on this little function, and you're kind of like so focused on the little tiny thing, you miss the whole big picture of how this big sub-module of the program is actually supposed to work. Right. Or, you know, what's the interface layer between well, this you, program? Like, you can't see the forest for the trees. Why would that be any different than how you're coding anyways, though? Like, you don't, when you start writing something, you're not you have to start at a function level. Like, you have to start somewhere. Sure, yeah. but, like, I've, I've, at least for me, like, especially on this thing, the first round, I spent a lot of time just thinking about how are the things going to interact, what's the high-level functionality you want, how can I plumb that together in Stacky's architecture that it already has. You know, so there was probably at least a solid week. Right, but you planning. had a lot of pieces that interacted with each other and so you yeah. knew you needed an out of this to be this for the other function to work so why not write tests around this because that's not going to change like the beginning and then you just well, I mean, keep... even before I wrote a line of code I just thought what what is where can I even start to plumb this in right like the, there's there's like kind of like this high level abstract thought of well yeah but you were not going to start writing tests before doing that part you're still going to sit down there and think about it. I guess that's what I'm saying, is that it doesn't, TDD doesn't replace that. No. Right? Okay. No, it's just... I don't know. It doesn't replace that. I know Cause, that. Cause I've, There's I've, still... I've, a, I've yeah. definitely, as long as you can plan out your architecture, plan out kind of the classes you think you'll need, then I could see that. Once you have your kind of class model yeah. or your data models, then you can start writing the individual tests for the individual functions that you think the classes are going to need. Yeah, you're still planning everything, but then you're just confirming along while you're writing code that it's working. You know, it may sound like stating the obvious to this group, but I've definitely (laughs) seen where, you know, people take something like, oh, test-driven development, you know, and they just get down in the weeds and they never look. I just clicked the TDD button in my IDE and it... Okay, so uh, it's been, wow, 30 minutes. Um, so I want to end every show with what were you into this week? And I'll start. I was into marble racing. Marble? It's marble? Like, marble racing. It is the start of the 2019 Marble Olympics. Like the little glass yep. spheres? Yep. This guy, I don't know, I forgot, I should have written down his name. He puts like four marbles on this like track that he builds and he makes them go and he measures their time and there's heats and there's points and there's oh man it's so good wow all right wow you do you (laughs) (laughs) i'm amazed by it i mean i fast forward a little bit but it's pretty good uh let's see so this past weekend i took a uh cheese making class that was pretty rad uh, we made, um, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, Chev? 
Okay. It's uh, goat cheese. Like, if you go to Costco and you buy goat cheese, yeah. that's essentially what we made. Okay. Um, I'll, you can make any kind of cheese you want with goat milk, but that's just what got the name goat cheese here in the States. Okay. Um, yeah, so we made, we made goat cheese. That was really, really fun. It's nice. It's like you... Most cheese, well, like hard cheeses that you think of, like, you have to age for a while. You have to kind of have a controlled environment for them. Yeah. Um, but not so much goat cheeses. The, the chev is pretty easy to make. Just leave it out? Yeah, you just, you know, you, you boil up the milk and you add the stuff and there's a lot, there's steps, right? But at the end of the day, you press the cheese into the mold and you just let it drain. Do we get to try some of this goat cheese? I've got like this much. Because so we only got to keep like a little bit. Okay. I put it in a jar of olive oil, rosemary, and celery seed. It's supposed to absorb the flavor, so we'll see. That sounds exciting. Yeah. I might make some more. It's, it's not hard to make that kind. Other ones, you know, obviously you need more stuff. Maybe I'll do that. Good shit. Yeah. Chris? I guess my guilty pleasure this week has been uh, Punisher Season 2. Uh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, it, it's ultraviolet. Um, the plot, it's not heavy on the plot, but if you just want something, just watch a guy just beat the crap out of people and shoot them, and it's uh, pretty good. I like all the Marvel stuff, though. Yeah, so. yeah. Whole cinematic universe. Punisher's Marvel? I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. My uh, Marvel DC knowledge isn't so high. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. It's shameful. <laughs> it is. All right, right. Actually got a chance to fire up a video game this weekend. So uh, my wife, Sheena, has been really into Terraria lately. If you don't know what Terraria is, it's like a 2D Minecraft. You 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 mine the blocks and you build bases and uh -huh. stuff, and then you you like fight bosses and that kind of thing. And she needed help killing Skeletron Prime. <laughs> Red, fuck that guy. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, we had been into, like, years ago, we'd been playing Terraria, and I fired up Steam, my dude was still there, decked out in his, like, crazy wizard robes and, you know, death metal harp and that kind of thing. Just so, waiting for you to come back to Yeah. <laughs> so we jumped in there, and we kicked Skeleton Prime's ass, and she's like, wow, it's, that was really easy, let's summon the two eyeballs of death, and we fought the twin eyeballs that turn into flamethrowers and laser guns, and yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> Pretty that kid did wow. a lot of drugs. <laughs> right? Yeah, he did a lot of drugs. Awesome. But, uh, it was lots of fun. That's right. Yeah. That was way better than talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mike. I'm glad, yeah. I'm glad your expectations Your life was less boring this week. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Raw Popcorn. Bye-bye.